Hello, welcome to another edition of Playback Daily. It's Friday the 6th of October. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what you might have missed on Radio 1 today. I'm approaching 41 years in the Oireachtas. Um, I have reached retirement age and I have, I think, given everything I can to um, parliamentary life. And then so, if they lose, well then I don't think there's a dinner made for the week, I don't think there's a kettle yeah, boiled, you know, a whole house does be like the humour, does be unreal, it's, we're so emotionally attached to the sport. It's fantastic isn't it, it's so close, that, that's the great thing with the World yeah. Cup being in France, uh, it's so close for the, 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 the Irish and the Scottish fans. Secrets from the Sidelines is a new RTE documentary taking us behind the scenes of Irish amateur sports including GAA, basketball and football coaches for the programme but also Jobstown Boxing Club and their team of boxers as they prepared for the national finals. Coaches Amanda Spencer and James Gray joined Kira King on the 9 o'clock show today. You set up the Jobstown Boxing Club didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Okay, yeah, I set it up in 2015. Um, I opened it myself and then I took on a team of coaches. James's brother, Carl, would have come on board with me. Um, we got it established. We done a load of meetings. We set it up. We affiliated to the IABA, the mm-hmm. Boxing Association. And then it just went from there. That was brilliant. And are you the first woman to set up a boxing club in Ireland? In Dublin. In, in Dublin. Dublin. Yeah. So in Dublin, a lot of women would have been involved in boxing clubs with their husbands. And they like the husband would have owned the club. The women would have been the secretaries and stuff like that. But I established it and opened it yeah. myself. Well, well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I was watching the, the documentary last night and I know it's on uh, RTE next week. And the two of you, your couple. We are. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. unfortunately. You're unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> so what's that like as a couple to be working, you know, in the in the boxing centre? Well, we kill each other right now. I have to say, we do kill each other right now. It's great. Like, it has its good points and it has its bad points as well because, like, if it's going good, it's great. But when we if we have an argument in the mm-hmm. club, it comes home with us, you know? So, gotcha. like, that's There's the no cut off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, the, so that yeah. must be kind of hard sometimes too, as well. You yeah. know what I mean? When you're living together and you're working together. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a life, though. Boxing is a life, and I think if we didn't have boxing, I don't think we'd have a relationship. <laughs> if you could hear the arguments <laughs> that come from our house, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is boxing related. Everything we do from the time we get out of bed till the time we go to bed is boxing, boxing related. Yeah. And how how did um so how was that then? As you said, everything was boxing related. So how was that then to have cameras following the both year round? Oh, that like, was we, even we had the, You know, like Tom and Mary on you know Craggy Island, Father Ted. Were you on your best <laughs> behaviour, or yeah. were you very much yourselves? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we wore ourselves. There was no script to it, you know. So um, we we just do what we do every day. There was. We just do what we do, mm-hmm. you know. It was hard, like because y- you are conscious of the cameras being there, and like that for cursing and stuff, and yeah. you know. And then when our kids are around, because we've two little baby boys, so like you know when they're on rampages and we're trying to film, and it's just it was hard. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know what way it comes across on the program, but no, it was it's lovely. hard. It's lovely, um, but. There is an emotional attachment to the kids, obviously, that you're you're training. I'd say I'd imagine it's hard not to have an emotional attachment when they're so young. They're coming into you so young, and you kind of see them grow and whatnot. What's that like? Oh. Yeah, no, it is hard because we go. Some of the lads there in the club, they've been kind of with us since they're five, six. Um, 
and even for the likes of Charlie and stuff that was on it, like them lads kind, they more or less hang around us, you know, like even during we the summer. We them, like we'd know everything about them and we'd probably see them more than their own family see them. They'd be with us. We do have to literally kick them out of the club, like there's no time, like the class starts at a certain time, but there's no time limit to when they actually go home to their own house. Even in the summers <laughs> and stuff, they'll sit in the garden with us, like they'll come around and they'll be in the garden, they'll be playing football with the kids and that, you know, so you, you do get, you're trying then to, be a coach to them as well but like when they take a loss or something happens like it does kind of affect you and it does come home with us a bit like, yeah because when they're winning it's all good with everybody and when they're losing it's like the book ends with you yeah. why did they lose but when they win why did they win it's the same situation I know what you, you mean. know so no matter um, what there's no cut off you mentioned Charlie there James and um, you know I watched a documentary last night and I was like I want to adopt that kid <laughs> so Charlie is one of your, your younger boxers and we follow his journey a little bit yeah, you know in, in the documentary um, and like that, as you said, like it's really important to teach kids that winning is important and winning yeah. is great, but also dealing with the loss. Yeah, it just be like a debt to them. It just yeah. be like a debt. And some of the kids do feel like as if that's it, there's nothing else for them. They've lost or out. They go on like as if the world is over. So it's up to us as coaches to try and get them over that hump. And it's the same with us. Like we can't show in front of them how we feel about it. And we do have to put on a front to them. When oh. we go home, then we have our coaches meeting mm. and say, yeah. where do we think it went wrong? Because we have a little boy, Blake, as well, coming through the ranks. And he's absolutely amazing. And he's going to be the same with Charlie. The two of them, they're just brilliant. And they just bounce off each other. And when it goes right for them it goes right mm. and then when it goes wrong for them it's like right we have to fix this yeah you know I also think it's, it's so important that there is a facility like that in the area that you're in and I think that boxing is so important as well for I took up boxing a couple of years ago I know what you're thinking Ooh, you're, you're, you're thinking Paris 2024 guys I'm kind of busy I don't know will I make it to the Olympics but no my point is me as a grown woman took it up and I just found that it was really great at getting whatever aggression that I had you know what I mean? Like inside, yeah. I had a list of names on my head, guys. Right. Yeah. Um, but I found it really good, and I found it like obviously it was brilliant physically and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's so important for young kids, uh, for young teenagers, and for young men especially, to have that channel to get whatever energy is inside them for whatever different reason. Yeah, you know what I mean? We had. It's mad because. I think people's idea of boxing is completely different to what it is where people think it's such a rough sport absolutely and it, yeah. it, it definitely is a rough sport now it does have its rough moments but to what it actually is it's a million miles apart and like we are saying especially for young men like we live in such a disadvantaged area and a lot goes on in the area and for the amount of classes we have to get that amount of kids in off the street it's great and then you'll also have parents come to us like we're just the average Joe Sows as well Like, but parents would be keen and saying thanks for what you're doing for this child and that child and stuff and we're kind of we'd be a little bit taken back by it yeah. as well you know but it, can very it is boxing clubs th mm. there's so many boxing clubs even just around us and although like we're competitive with all of them we are a very competitive club but the jobs that boxing clubs do it is amazing like and that goes yeah. for all, all, all sports coaches. as well yeah, it is real. so important especially in, in the area just like where we are as well you know mm -hmm. yeah. so but it is great oh, I love amazing. like I think that obviously you guys are doing such an incredible job if the kids don't want to leave 
you know I think that yeah. kind of you know that kind yeah. of says it but all but they've been reared with us from a baby and you do get that connection and James always says to me Amanda you have to cut off the point of trying to be a mother to them like don't be trying to murder the them the mother to stay over there you know <laughs> be the coach don't just try to be the mother to them you know because yeah. you do you get so emotionally involved in that everyday life like even when the little boys in the club or the older boys they become obviously the age where they're getting girlfriends and stuff and we're trying to say to them no when they're having bad times and all we're like no like you need to go down this path you need to go down this yeah. road like it's you become more of a social worker to them yeah, no, as well that. and I'm sure all boxing coaches are the same and even anything that's going on in their lives it comes back to the club yeah now and the the gang outside are going to kill me but I watched the David Beckham documentary right during the week on Netflix okay I didn't even get to see it it's good have a yeah. watch right but my point about coaches is David Beckham his life changed when Alex Ferguson walked into his life yeah and you know being a coach is so important it can change lives and the documentary Secrets from the Sideline it does focus on the importance of sport and coaches former Ireland soccer manager Brian Kerr says uh, they change people's lives. They provide principles and standards for life. And how does that make you feel? Uh, it takes you back a little bit. Like, it does. There's a, a boy there that we have in the club, uh, Josh O'Lanian. He's getting ready for an elite now. And that's massive for us. Um, we're only open a certain amount of time to have a boy going into the elites. But he's with us since he's a baby. And like we were messing coming. We had a sparring session and coming home. And uh, he says... Uh, I don't go to parties anymore. Uh, he was like, you are my friends. And you're, you're kind of sitting in the yeah. front of the car and you're kind of going, you just laugh it off but in your head you're saying, that's mad. You know, like, my, yeah. my heart just went, oh, when you said yeah, that there. Yeah, you know it's what mad. I mean? like, but the connection you have with them, like, oh, we have got, it, it is... And if a boy leaves your club or a girl leaves your club and you've had them for a long time, like it can have a devastating effect on your own mental health. Like, cause it'd just be like a death. It'd just be like yeah. they're gone now, and they're not like they're only gone to a different job or they're only down the road. But they're gone from you, from being around you all them hours and all you know. So it can mm-hmm. be very hard on you. It really is. And um, get back to you, and you're being a mum, but your your daughter's box. Yeah, my hmm. two daughters have boxed, yeah. So what's their story with boxing now? Or? Well, Tiffany's still boxing. Chantelle doesn't box. My eldest daughter doesn't box at the moment. She did box. She boxed for many years. She boxed from the age of seven right up to... Champion, yeah, she wow. boxed right up until 16, I think it was. She's won hmm. internationals. She's won. She was at a good level of boxing and then she quit and I was devastated. And then the younger one started it during the lockdown. It was because of the lockdown. She was a hip-hop dancer. She was a footballer. She danced with Dream Dance Academy and she just said she wanted to try boxing and I was like, you're too old now like at 15 you're going to be meeting people we that thought she was too soft yeah I thought she was a soft natured child that she wouldn't be yeah. able for because she's brilliant on the dance floor she was an amazing dancer amazing footballer and he brought her into the club during lockdown because the club was in their back garden yeah. and he started doing little bits with her and he says to me one night I think she might be able for this and I was like I don't know what she's going to be like at getting a punch in the face <laughs> you know I don't know how she would take yeah. that she's amazing absolutely amazing but, she just gelled but you okay so I know you're a coach but you're also a mom. mother so what's it like when you see her getting a punch in the face? Do you know what? I it's... think I'd be running across the no, room like, stop, everyone stop. Believe yeah. it or not, it's not as bad when it's your own child. Like like that when I see Charlie, Blake or the twins or any of the little boys in the club try and that like when I see Max and all, when I see all them little boys getting the punch, I'm like, I oh, know they're well able for it. And then when I see my own child get it, it doesn't faze me. It actually doesn't faze me at all. Because you know she can take it. Yeah, she can take it. Now there's been times, there has been times that she's been inspired with girls that are a lot older and more advanced than her and she's took a few smacks and I'd be like, oh, I don't know what effect that's going to have on her. And I'll ask her, we'll always sit her down and say to her, was that too much for you? Do you want us to calm it down? Because of the age she's at, she has to go in at that level. So 
she'll tell us like Tiffany will tell us do not put me in that spar again or yeah no get me that I want and that she again. bruises like a peach as oh, well she bruises as soon really as she takes easy. a dig she'll be circling around you'll be looking at her face and you'll just see a big red welt start to come out on the side of her and then just goes down yeah. nobody else in the club has ever been so like it that, doesn't it? really I think it's because I watched my eldest daughter get punched all yeah. my life mm-hmm. you know so I don't think it phases me I just I do watch her in it and I always keep an eye on it and I do know by her demeanour in the ring if she's either getting hurt or if she's not so but she is tough like she's a tough kid ah, she's, tough she's tougher than we, than we mm. thought mm-hmm. she is tougher than we thought um, I was watching uh, the documentary and I was thinking you know I was looking at the box and Ireland has done so well in the Olympics in terms of Brilliant. boxing mm. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder now, is there an Olympic champion? You well, know, we in have the two of the boys, the Olanian brothers, and um, they're mm. the next prospect for us for going in for the Olympics. Adam is a bit young now. I think he's he's 17 now, is he? So, And then Josh is not, they're two brothers and they're amazing. And I think they're going to be the ones for our club that will take us that, mm. down that field. And you will be, well, let's just say, let's let's put it out there that it's going to happen. Sometimes, it is going to happen. When I watch um, American gymnast coaches looking at their gymnasts on the sideline or parents you know watching on are you going to be those type of coaches on the oh, sideline you know what I mean like <laughs> oh, so when the, when the boys go to the Europeans they go away with the Irish team and you, it gets live streamed on YouTube and you should see our sitting room like I'll be up and I'm shadow boxing in the sitting room and I'm sweating you know so with all the windows open we have we, we, we can't talk to each other well, yeah. we can't have a look box at each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. away with a team. We or can't that whole day. We can't even speak to each other. We'd be, be getting sick in the sim room <laughs> doing the corner. You know, you're yeah. telling him what to do, and he's in Turkey. You know, and I'm in Kildallan, and I'm and showing. You're shouting <laughs> yeah, at the television. Yeah, yeah. Move, Adam, move. And, and so, then if they lose, well, then I don't think there's a dinner made for the week. I don't think there's a kettle boiled. Yeah, you know, the whole house me. does be like the humour does be unreal. Mm. It's we're so emotionally attached to the sport. Yeah. Coaches Amanda Spencer and James Gray from Jobstown Boxing Club and you can watch Secrets from the Sidelines on RTE1 on Monday night at 9.35. Well, a big story today was the announcement by former Labour Party leader and government minister Brendan Howland that he won't be running in the next general election. He spoke to Brian Dobson on the News at One. The Wexford TD, first elected in 1987, served as party leader, deputy leader and was minister in three governments. In the aftermath of the financial crash in 2011, he was appointed Minister of Public Expenditure and Reform in the Fine Gael Labour government and oversaw significant spending cuts. As a Labour minister, I never expected, Count Corla, that I would be making the type of announcements I am making today. Changes to the one-parent family payment will save £20.7 million. Brendan Hallam went on to become party leader in 2016. Now, Labour and Ireland are in a strong position again to grow. I am very confident about our party's future. Brendan Howland speaking at the time of his election as leader of the Labour Party in 2016. We can talk now to Mr Howland, who's on the line from his Wexford constituency. A very good afternoon to you, Brendan Howland, and welcome to the News at One. Good afternoon, Brian, and thank you for having me. So tell us why this decision today? Why have you decided that the time has come? Well, I think that I am approaching 41 years in the Oireachtas. A few people have uh, served as long. Um, I have reached retirement age and I have, I think, given everything I can to um, parliamentary life uh, and it's time to pass the baton on to somebody else. Um, I'm extraordinarily proud of the 40 years I've served in the Oireachtas and extraordinarily humbled by 
the unbroken support of the good people of Wexford who have kept me there. Uh, you were centrally involved in many of the negotiations uh, which led to Labour entering government. You served in a, a number of governments. Um, was that period in the 2011 uh, Fine Gael Labour government, the, the austerity period, was that, was that by any measure the most difficult? Oh, there's no doubt about that. I think that was probably the most challenging period in Irish politics um, since the establishment of the state. Uh, and we went in with our eyes open that uh, we knew th- there was awfulness ahead. Um, but we stood for election on the basis that we wanted to do best we could for our country and for the people we represented. Uh, and we were faced with three crises. I mean, we had the fiscal crisis where we literally had no money as a state to pay our way. We had an employment crisis with 200,000 people unemployed, um, made unemployed by the collapse of the construction industry. And we had a banking crisis where we didn't have a functioning banking system. So any one of those would have beggared and destroyed a government, and we had to try and fix all three. And it was an extraordinarily difficult journey, uh, and I know uh, a lot of people suffered, uh, but each decision we made, we did our very best uh, to do it with the least impact on the most vulnerable. We made mistakes, of course. Uh, And those were? No, I mean, look through things. Um, Perhaps, people ask me, I I think we probably should have um, had a greater, better communication, the rows we were having internally, because our job was to keep the confidence of investors internationally in Ireland. Uh, So a lot of the disagreements we had and rows we had internally uh, were kept internal and people didn't understand, uh, you know, the, the battles we were constantly daily uh, engaged in uh, mapping our way forward. Labour paid a huge political price for its involvement in that uh, government and for decisions that uh, that you and Michael Noonan made. In the 2011 election, Labour had a first preference share of the vote of 19% at the last election. That was down to less than 4.5%. Why do you think Labour um, took such a hiding for its role in that government? Well, I think people suffered during that period. But I mean, I was elected first, as you just said, in uh, 1987. Uh, Our uh, vote in 1987 was 4.5%. A few years later, we had the election of Mary Robinson as the Labour candidate. And um, two years after that, uh, we had 33 seats in the spring tide. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the value of Labour is enduring in this country. We've been at the vanguard of social and economic change. We have never put the party and the interests of the party before the interests of the people we represent. Um, That has not always, you're right, been to Mm. our credit in terms of the political dividend. But I hope that the lesson that others have learned from our participation in trying to do what is right by our country is not to shy away from um, standing in the breach when, when, when we're needed. And I know that's not the view of the Labour Party. We will do what is right. Mm. We've, we've championed causes from uh, re- repeal of the eighth uh, to, to uh, same-sex marriage uh, for years and years when nobody else was championing it. And, you know, we have, we've been, as I say, at the cutting edge of the, the progress that I've seen in my 40 years in politics, where Ireland has transformed itself both socially and economically. Uh, I, I don't want to over, overdo 2011, but I mean, people will remember mm. the election campaign and the promises that Labour made. It was going to be uh, Labour's, Frankfurt's way or Labour's way. We all remember that one from Eamon Gilmore. There was the, the Tesco ad. People may recall what Fine Gael have in store for you, many of which were, were introduced uh, by you uh, in government uh, subsequently. Um, were people, were Labour supporters misled in that election? 
Well, I think you've asked me that question uh, about a thousand times in the last seven years. Uh, and I think Groundhog Day has to end um, after looking back at 40 years of contributions. Um, Frankfurt's way um, was not what we intended. Um, and we can, we persuaded Fida Gale to give the haircut we promised uh, to the, the bondholders. Um, but Frankfurt threatened to explode a bomb on our economy. Uh, and we couldn't do that. Uh, it wasn't because we didn't intend to, but because the consequences of doing it were unconscionable. And if you saw what actually happened to Greece subsequently, uh, when um, liquidity that we were dependent on to have a functioning economy was squeezed there, the hardship that was imposed. So we had to modify some of our, our, our commitments that we wanted desperately to, to implement. But I think if you look at the, the broad sweep of success, it won't be a Tesco ad. It'll be getting full employment after five years. It'll be getting a functioning economy back. It'll be getting a base for us to be able to deal with, for example, the COVID crisis. Had we not fixed the economy, we wouldn't have been able as a, as a state to survive the COVID crisis. Uh, so I think history would be kinder than the questioning that you put All right, to well, me. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> um, perhaps the final question, and maybe I can guess the answer, sure. but there's long been a Labour seat uh, in, uh, in Wexford, Brendan Corish, and, yeah. and before. Uh, will there be one after the next election? Absolutely, certainly. Um, I am extremely confident, and I intend to work even harder for my successor uh, to hold the Wexford seat and the Wexford tradition. And I have been deeply honoured always to have huge support in Wexford. Um, a local, I did a local paper interview this morning that said there's only three certainties in life. Uh, uh, taxes, death and uh, how long will hold the, the, the seat in Wexford. I think that will, will, will be true of my successor as well, the All good right. people of Wexford who've returned me successfully so often will do it again. All right. Well, we appreciate your time this afternoon, Brendan Hall, and wish you, well, wish you well for your retirement, which isn't just quite yet. A little while to go. <laughs> no, no. no I've oh. lot, lot to do still. Labour's Brendan Howland on the News at One today. On Today with Claire Byrne, the host spoke to former RTE journalist Fergal Keane, who made a startling discovery at his home yesterday. Here's Claire. My next guest day yesterday started out in a fairly mundane fashion when he was clearing out a shed at his house in West Cork. But things changed rapidly when he and the team helping him uncovered an earthenware jar buried in a wall which contained well over a hundred sticks of the explosive Jalignite. Former RTE journalist Fergal Keane, you're welcome to the programme. How are you, Claire? I'm fine. Um, I haven't had as an ex as exciting 24 hours as you appear to have. Did you have an explosion there this morning? We had three explosions yesterday afternoon, three very large explosions uh, when the army, we called in the guards and the army bomb squads early yesterday morning. And they, where the shed was, we, we, had this, we have this house now for about six years and we'd never been in this part before. And uh, they took away, it's up to between 160 and 180 sticks of gelignite they found in the end and blew them up in three very big explosions. So it was uh, a bit of excitement for us all down in Baltimore. So tell me about the discovery then. Was it in a jar as I described? Yeah, well, this we bought this place in 2017 and we've been doing it up as a derelict farm. Nobody had lived there. It's right in the, practically in the village of Baltimore and nobody had lived there for about 30 years. We've, we've done the house and we're moving out now into the fields and uh, this is one group of outhouses we've started to work on. They've mostly built of stone, walls maybe two and a half feet thick and uh, they're 
small structures, one of them now, this one we're working on, would be about three metres square just internally, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly tumbled down. So it it was actually on... uh, the night before, on Wednesday evening, uh, the man who was doing the stonework for, for me there, um, he gave me a call. That shame is so difficult. He gave me a call and said, look, we found this jar in this wall. What do you think? And I said, well, what's in it? This is, hopefully it's money. No, <laughs> no, it's explosives. It says gelignite on it. So I came over and uh, we had a look at it uh, yesterday morning. And yeah, it's gelignite, and um, there were little sticks, uh, lots and lots of them, in this earthenware jar, about a foot long, with a, a wide open neck, and stopped with a cork. But then we also saw that in the wall there were dozens more uh, sticks of this stuff. They were about four or five inches long on the ground where some of the wall had fallen down. Lots more of them, and I mm. knew from my work in Northern Ireland and all of these other places that gelignite is really unstable when it gets to a certain stage and stuff starts seeping out of it and it becomes very volatile. So we cleared the place. Um, I called the guards. They came over from Clonakilty fairly quickly, had a look, called cordon off the whole area I had to leave the house we all had to leave and then they called the army bomb squad who arrived on yesterday afternoon So we, you you were clear Fergal that, that this could have done significant damage if it had it, detonated Huge it was um, it pre, it's, a, it's like a plastic explosive and a pre, it's a precursor to what we would have known as Semtex is what was used in terrorist attacks in Northern Ireland up until uh, the, the late 80s when they moved on to something else. It was also used in as a, it's a commercial explosive, very, very volatile as it gets older. So what do you know about how and when it was put into the wall and what the yeah, story is behind it? Yeah, there's huge local interest in this thing because it, it obviously dated from the War of Independence era and here in, here in West Cork, it was a very, very active area for uh, the IRA back then. And we, when we bought this house, we were contacted by American people whose descendants, whose predecessors had lived in the house. And back in the early or late 1919 the three of the sons living in the house were the local IRA commanders. One of them was called Dennis O'Neill. And we suspect so he, he took part in the in the biggest one of the biggest actions of the uh, war of independence in Kilmichael where there was an ambush and there were 16 black and tans killed and three IRA men it, it's it's here in West Cork and it seems that he when either at that time or after the treaty hid away this uh, explosives and then he emigrated a couple of years later and was obviously forgotten about. The shed started to fall down, the roof fell in, there was a whole, like we, we'd never been in it and when he looked it was just a pile of rubble in the middle and so when we found it that we uh, yesterday we discovered what it was and uh, it's it's part really of the local history here. Oh, it's fascinating, it's fascinating then a history for you to now examine I would imagine in, in more detail. What yeah, was the... but unfortunately that's all it seems to be up in the atmosphere because we tried <laughs> to ask them to save bits I don't know how much they've actually saved but um, okay. local people here have come to me and said you know there was a, the very first action in the War of Independence was an ambush in, in a place called in Tipperary where the West Cork IRA took a whole lot of gelignite which was being escorted by the REC at the time. Most of it has never been found and we now believe 
that what we found yesterday was part of that. So have the other outhouses, have you any more now that need to be examined? Yeah, we have, yeah. Okay, to go through them all now. <laughs> this is a, it could be a rewilding uh, project for us, but we have to unwild parts of it first because uh, I'd say the land hadn't been worked for about 50 years and we were working on it. There were some other outhouses and the advice yesterday from the army was, well, look, we've made this part safe just proceed with caution as you go <laughs> and if you okay. find anything else give us a go. And were you allowed to watch the army as they went about their work removing the gelignite? No, they cleared the whole area yeah. and it's just like our nearest neighbours maybe 100 metres away so they didn't clear out houses but uh, you weren't allowed to stay and watch it so people watched from a, a road overlooking it and uh, there are photographs of and videos of the uh, explosions that we put out. They're quite large and like 186 of Jagnite would t- take down several buildings. Yeah, I saw one of the videos this morning that uh, I think you put up yourself, wasn't it, of, yeah, of one of the was, explosions. Yeah. I mean, it looks very dramatic. It's really dramatic. Yeah, but, you know, it's a, it's a bit of history and also I have to admit a bit of excitement for a us down here in, in West Cork where uh, during the winter things can get a bit, a bit quiet. Former RTE journalist Fergal Keane on Today with Claire Byrne. Great news for the Irish film industry today. The movie In the Shadow of Beirut has been announced as Ireland's official entry in the Best International Feature Film category at the Oscars next year. It's the first film from Dubliner Stephen Gerard Kelly and co-director Gary Keane. And Stephen spoke to Maura Hannan on Morning Ireland. By luck, I became friends with one of the families in the film. And over a period of three years from 2015 to 2018, I literally spent nearly every day with with the family in the community of Shatila, learning Arabic and just um, learning about a very different culture from where I'm from. In 2018, having uh, having reached a command of Arabic where I could now communicate with people because nobody in the film speaks English and... I, I, I began to film after people would ask me in times of celebration to film a wedding, to, to film a childbirth, but also increasingly in times of hardship and despair and suffering where, where people were angry and upset um, at, at injustices and would ask me, knowing that I worked with cameras, to, to document, to film and to, to act Life in Sabra and Shatila is incredibly hard. Each day is is a mammoth fight for survival just to put food on the table for your family. Despite all that, people have immense love. I mean, that's the overarching uh, feeling that I always get when I'm in Sabra and Shatila is, is incredible love, is the importance of family, of, of, uh, of sharing and supporting when you have nothing but you still reach out a hand to a neighbour who's in more need than you in that moment. Getting the nomination from IFTA is uh, personally an incredible honour for me and for my co-director, Gary Keane. Um, for the film itself, the recognition from IFTA really helps promote the film in, in the eyes of a global audience. 
Stephen Gerard Kelly there talking to our reporter Maura Hannan about his movie In the Shadow of Beirut, which is Ireland's official entry for the Best International Feature Film at the Oscars next year. Having lots of praise for IFTA, uh, the Irish Film and Television Academy and their chief executive, Anya Moriarty, joins us. And this is great news. I mean, you think of on Colleen Kuhn, you see this now. Uh, what's going on in the Irish movie business? Well, I think we're, we're, we've definitely come of age. You know, it's it's been um, a lot of investment over 20, 25 years at least minimum. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and I think all of that is coming onto the screen in a big way. Not to say that we haven't done so in the past from time to time, but you can see it coming on hard and fast now. And it's yeah, a great there's result. there's a stream. It's not just a one-off, but that's there right. actually does seem that's to be right. something. And that's the result of good investment and Screen Ireland has, has, you know, and government has really come behind the industry. And that's that's something that's really welcomed by, by people working in the ground. And what happens next now for, for this movie? For the... For in the shadow of Beirut. For in the shadow of Beirut. Well, obviously now we we've announced it's gone out uh, worldwide. It's in all of all of the trades, so it's really gone into the competition, and it's about getting that word of mouth out there because you need to get the academy members to watch it, and so you really have to spread the word. They've already been out in one, in one festival, and they've won awards, but we need to get them out, uh, get people into cinemas watching it, and get a lot of traction. Um, once people see this film. It is really a really beautiful piece of work. You can hear Stephen there, the passion that has gone into it. This is an Irish guy who's gone in on the ground, has worked with people, has 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 lived with them for many years, and he's brought. He's he was a, he was a cameraman uh, behind before he was a cinematographer, so he could see the beauty in in that as well, and he brought it onto the screen. It's very very heartwarming but heartbreaking as well at the same time. Will you be there at that Oscar ceremony by the way in March? Well we'll see now <laughs> because <laughs> actually there's quite, there's quite a few Irish potential contenders again this year. You see okay. this is what I'm saying is that um, you know there's a slate of people who are who are um, coming through the ranks and you've got Andrew Scott and Paul Meskell great contenders Barry Keown again Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer you know so Ireland is really punchy above its weight. And that was Anya Moriarty Chief Executive of the Irish Film and Television Academy on Morning Ireland today. Would you pay €500 Euros for one pair of runners if you could only wear them for one marathon and a few warm-up runs but that could guarantee you a faster race? Well, Brian O'Connell, reporter and avid runner had the lowdown on Today with Claire Byrne. So, Brian, tell us about the 500 euro runners. Have you got a pair yourself? I've just held off. Not quite. I need to talk to the credit union first. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So these carbon or magic shoes, some people call them colloquially, they've been around a couple of years. And every year, then one of the main companies will sort of bring out a new model. And Adidas are the latest. Now, in general, what we're talking about here are runners that would have a certain type of foam in them. They have more support. It's kind of a rocking kind of a feel if if you wear them when you run. And then many of them have this carbon plate either midsole or they have a couple of carbon plates in the soles and essentially this carbon plate will absorb the energy when you hit the ground and it's meant to push you back up off the ground so the idea in theory you should run faster and you should recover quicker mm, I'm uh, yeah I'm very huh? suspicious of this now the Adidas one the 500 euro one got a lot of attention at a recent mar- marathon N- not available in sh- I, I know you're wondering what to get me for Christmas but they're not available in the shops yet Claire so you can't literally buy them off the shelf yet but some of the elite runners 
runners in Berlin a couple of weeks back wore them, including the winner. And she smashed the women's world record by two minutes. So obviously a lot of attention on the shoes. So the shoe is the Adi Zero Adios Pro Zero One. They really come up with catchy titles, don't they? So it's about 40% lighter than most of these super shoes that are available. It's developed, they tell us, in training camps in Kenya, all sorts of cutting edge design. They have this foam technology and it's designed for, wait for it, one race and then a couple of familiarisation miles and all for the sum of 500 euros. That's ridiculous. One marathon, you have to throw them away. I mean, basically that's it. Like all of the these carbon runners you buy will have a limit. So you're looking at many of them about 250 to maybe 500 miles. And then after that, the carbon doesn't really work anymore. So you have to replace them anyway. But you're not paying 500 euro for many of the carbon shoes that are on the market. You're probably paying maybe 150 to maybe 300 euro at the top end. So I suppose the question is, are these new shoes the greatest marketing ploy in running history or do they actually work? So I thought to myself, surely somewhere there's an academic who's looked into this and sure enough Dustin Joubert is an assistant professor in St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas and he had actually put several of these brands to the test in a lab it was part of an academic paper and he told me about some of his findings. We had looked at kind of um, male runners at six minute mile pace the Nike shoes were the top tier there was an ASIC shoe ASIC super shoe at the time a um, couple mid-tier ones and there were a couple duds that were just kind of at the level of the, the control shoe so when you look at our study at the top tiered shoes and that same Nike shoe, like across other studies in the research lit, you're looking at like three to 4% running economy benefits on average. Now to get that three to 4% running economy, I have to be running six minute miles pretty much. The, the more recent study that we published, we wanted to see like, does this help like a four hour marathon runner who's running, you know, eight minute mile pace or slower, let's say. In that one, we did see some reduced benefit, but there was still a benefit. It, it was it was still a kind of one two percent ish. And I suppose one to two percent in a four hour margin is a couple of minutes. You're looking at still still several minutes um, of potential benefit. The other benefit, I suppose, is recovery. Is it? Yeah, you know that's that's one of the areas in the research that still needs to be be um, investigated more. Most of the studies that have been done on these shoes is looking at running economy in a single session in the lab because it's easy to test a bunch of shoes or test different parameters with the shoes, you know, to have everyone run a marathon and three different shoes and then measure marker, markers of muscle damage and stuff days later is like, that's a bit harder to pull off, right? I feel like the anecdotal evidence is strong when you hear people talk about running in these new shoes and feeling like their legs are less beat. Yeah. If you, if you feel like you can't spend that money, there's probably a lot of ways you can train smarter and fuel better and get more yeah. sleep and, and get that one or two minutes. Yeah, but he is saying that if you want to win the marathon, these things are probably beneficial because the quicker you go, the more useful these things are. Yes, and they say four to five percent. I mean, it's not quite four to five percent off your time, but it includes things like oxygen efficiency. So, but if you look at, say, for example, if you're aiming to run a three-hour marathon, a four percent improvement is going to take about seven minutes off your time. So that's really significant. Um, I did ask some runners what they think and would they pay the five hundred euro for the new magic shoes, but just before that, I went into a specialist running shop, John Buckley Sports in Cork City, and I met uh, Mark Hanrahan, who, a very accomplished uh, international athlete himself. He represented Ireland many times. And Mark was telling me when the carbon shoes came in about six years ago, I think, uh, he was saying to them, look, we have to get these shoes in. So they ordered 100 pairs, €250 Euro a pair. And some of the lads in there were saying, who's going to buy these? 24 hours, they had the 100 pairs gone. Yes. So I chatted to him yesterday in a very busy shop yesterday afternoon. 
it's like running on springs. They, they just make a world, a world of difference. It's hard to explain to someone who hasn't put them on. It is like having a pogo stick or something sometimes on your feet that it's just literally bouncing back. Yes, so there's a huge difference. It, it is like, like you said, running with springs on your feet. Like it, it throws you forward. You could do a half marathon in the old traditional racing shoe and you'd probably be sore f- for a week. Whereas if you ran a half marathon in the new magic shoes, as we call them, you f- probably could get up the next day and do another half marathon. The one you have in your hand there, tell me about that. Well, that's the Siconian Endorphin Pro. So how many miles will I get out of this? Uh, longevity in a 250 or shoe as opposed to a 130 or shoe is a lot shorter. 300 kilometers max. So where's your normal training shoe you could get, get, get nearly 800 kilometers out of. You know, it, it will work anywhere from 5k up to Martin um, and you will probably run faster, recover faster. Adidas then, there's been a lot of focus on them since the Berlin Martin. So it's a one-shot shoe, $500. Yes, and a, a world record. <laughs> it is Fantastic for you if people yeah. can only wear the shoe once. They'll be back in you next week. Yes, but it's 500 euros as well. <laughs> yeah, if they could do that every week. What if you don't get a PB then? Can you come back in with your receipt and get the, get the money back? <laughs> you, well, if you can't get a PB with your 500 euro shoe, maybe get onto Adidas. Um, take up golf. Take up golf, yeah. Mark Hanrahan there. Now, you got some views of the runners, people who might think about buying these 500 euro shoes. Yeah, I didn't have far to go. I spoke to some of my Toker AC colleagues in Cork and some of them would be marathoners there, some are shorter distance runners and just asked a few of them to give me their thoughts on the on the new Magic shoes. First things first, no high tech shoe is going to improve your speed if you haven't done the work and put in the training. But if you put in the hard yards and are seeking out that little 1% for a PB, then they're an option to consider. I wear the Alpha Flies and I find them fantastic for speed work and tempo sessions. They're really light. Would I pay 500 euros for a pair of shoes I could only wear once? Absolutely not. <laughs> the difference it made to me was absolutely phenomenal. And I'm not one to be caught by gimmicks or that, but it was phenomenal, the difference. And not even not even speed, it was more the comfort and the recovery of the stride. So should it be banned? Um no. You shouldn't they shouldn't need a price people out on the market either where people can't afford them where they feel like they're at an advantage. I felt I was at a disadvantage when I didn't have them. Eventually because everybody had them and you'd rock up to race and you'd see two hundred lads at a local fight care with a pair of shoes worth 300 euro and you're going I can't make that much difference but it, but it, it genuinely does it made huge differences to me I suppose I'm old school I just get on with the ordinary runners they wear Nike I never try the carbons I have no intention my age just started but I didn't know I had this 500 euro worth no way in the world my wife would divorce me straight away and I get a grand holiday over for the 500 euros. He's right, Brian, he's right. <laughs> Although I have to say, I know I'm sceptical about the 500 euro ones, but I did get a pair of new trainers during the summer. Mm-hmm. And when you have a bit of bounce, it does yeah. help with the running, doesn't huge, it? Huge difference. Like the way I look at it is I'm going to spend the money on physio if I'm not investing in, like I would go through maybe three pairs of runners a year. And I kind of feel it's going to cut down my physio bills. Although you still go to physio if you're running a lot anyway. Um, like there is a debate about whether these, are we at the edge now where 
we've gone over the edge in terms of fairness and should should there be restrictions there's a debate in golf as well obviously around this um, and there are restrictions like World Athletics do have restrictions the, the shoe in terms of the foam thickness can't be more than 40 millimetres high and uh, you can only have the plate in the midsole or in certain parts of the shoe so there are restrictions in place already but this is really pushing it to the edge mm. and in terms of them being available like they just released a batch of 500 euros uh, 500 pairs sorry they sold out pre-sale uh, they're going to release another batch but I see online already I just had a look this morning you can buy them second hand uh, two and a half thousand sterling for a pair second hand but you can't wear them second hand well, you'd obviously have to take someone's, uh, if someone said to you they hadn't worn them, you just have to trust <laughs> that they haven't worn them. Because, I mean, you can buy the carbon shoes and try them out around the house. Not these ones, but regular pair of night carbon shoes. They allow you to try them out, wear them around the house once you don't wear them outside. And if they don't suit you, you can hand them back. But I'd say Adidas won't be letting you do that with these. Well, Rachel has texted us asking, is wearing carbon runners, is it not putting competitors at an unfair advantage? And you've just told us that debate's already happening, isn't like, it? I used to think that, Claire, when I went back running four or five years ago I would go to a 5k race say in Connor or Newmarket uh, like a country race and back then you'd have the first maybe three or four people would be wearing these and then gradually over the last year or two everybody is wearing them so I kind of bit the bullet and bought them but I am a marketing department stream like I have to say I'll buy the next pair that come out Are you um, Are you running in the Dublin Marathon this year? I'm not doing Dublin I'm going to do Seville in February so train through the winter for that mm, Very nice Trying Brian. to shake off a few injuries but there you go Reporter and runner Brian O'Connell on Today with Claire Byrne and the best of luck to anyone running this weekend and of course anyone running in the Dublin Marathon in three weeks and trust me you don't need a 500 euro pair of runners Well, there's another big night of rugby ahead for Ireland in Paris later. And to preview the Rugby World Cup clash, Ray Darcy had former players from both Ireland and Scotland on the show earlier. Uh, tomorrow at eight o'clock, all eyes will be on Paris once again as Ireland take on Scotland for another Rugby World Cup showdown. It's the Pool B decider. And to preview the game, I'm joined in studio now by former rugby international Shane Byrne. Good afternoon, Shane. How are we doing, Ray? And good. And on the phone for a bit of balance, former Scotland international and BBC pundit Peter Wright. Hello, Peter. Good afternoon, Ray. And Shane is there as well, Peter. Hey, Peter, how are you doing, Hi, man? Hi, Shane. How are you, mate? So, so you've literally banged heads before, haven't you, Peter? <laughs> Well, we were both in the front row, so yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, yes is the answer. We've, we've engaged at some point. <laughs> yes, we have. Uh, have you any dirt to dish on Shane Byrne, Peter, before we start? Oh. Uh, certainly nothing that can be broadcast on uh, <laughs> radio, I'm afraid. Thank you, Pete. I was always curious as to, you know, if you were scrumming down against him, was his hair an advantage that it softened the whole thing? <laughs> It was a real talking point. That used to come into it, so that was always a good, uh, always a good target to go for. Yeah, right. Okay, so uh, it's the pool B decider tomorrow night. Um, there's loads of different permutations. I was hinting at that. For the casual observer, it must must seem very complicated. Scotland are on ten points. Ireland are on fourteen. South Africa are sort of all through, all the way through with fifteen points. So if we win, that's it. There's no no debate, no permutations. Mm. However, if we lose and we don't get a bonus point, Scotland go through. Uh, and uh, so Scotland have to win with a bonus point. So they have to score four tries and beat us by more than seven points. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Scotland need to absolutely destroy us. Yes. Yeah, and, and get all the bonus points that they can gather. And we need to get none. 
that's important right. for, for them. For Scotland, yeah. Yeah, and like the craziness that we've heard during the week coming out of the, the South African camp that the Irish and the Scots would be in cahoots to get rid of them. Listen, as as, as convenient as that might be, no. That's not going to happen. Not a chance. No, no. Not a chance. Uh, I, I just see Johnny Sexton today. It was always going to come down to this game. Uh, and this is the one uh, we've been waiting for. Uh, there are the prophetic words of Ireland's captain, uh, Johnny Sexton. What's the atmosphere like in Scotland, Peter? Uh, very nervous. Uh, we, 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 we had the same thought that it would always come down to the Scotland-Ireland uh, game. We were obviously hoping that South Africa would beat Ireland and then it would be a, a, a straight winner-takes-all. Uh, but the permutation is slightly simpler than what you guys are saying. If, if Scotland win by eight points, uh, and Ireland don't get a bonus point of any sort. Ireland are out because it goes on the head-to-head. So Scotland uh-huh. will have a, yes, a yes. winning head-to-head against Ireland. So they would so obviously if you get a bonus point for four tries, usually go through. But if we can deny you four tries and beat you by eight points, <laughs> then you guys are gone. And Johnny Sexton's last game is tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> try to try to hide your glee there, please. Talk about that. <laughs> it sounds simple, doesn't it? It does sound simple, but obviously it's, it's uh, odd here, Peter. It's odd here because I feel that the narrative over the last two weeks has changed completely, and I, I think it is because Ireland have had two weeks to talk up this game. So we've nearly talked ourselves out of it, haven't we, Shane? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and look, all this is going to do is, is going to focus the team more. There's absolutely nothing has come out of the Irish camp to show that they are not taking this game extremely seriously. And uh, it, it with the intentions that they had, they would have had the intent to be at this point uh, undefeated. So they knew that this game would, would be what it was all about. And... The, it's ridiculous, you know, with the stupid draw, the way they did the draw in the group, that Scotland are in this position. Mm. You know what I mean? With the seeding that they have and that they also have seed one just and explain, two in that group. Just explain that to people. So, so Peter, you're seeded fifth in the world. Fifth, yeah. Uh, and you're in the same group as the uh, world-ranked number one team, which is Ireland, and the world champions, yeah. which is South Africa. So I... Yeah, I thank you, I'm I feel very sorry for you already. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> because Yeah, I mean, that, that, we, we, have, we suffered from three or four. They, they've done the draw three years ago. That was Crazy. the problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and the rationale being that they've got to give teams time uh, to try and find bases and get the logistics right. But if you look at the FIFA Football World Cup, they, they do the draw seven, nine months before. So if it's good enough for the football, surely it's good enough for the rugby. And the other, the other, the other disappointing thing is you've got the top five teams in one half of the draw. Yep. Yes. So the way the draw is supposed to work, one, two, three, and four should get to the semi-final. But one, two, three, four, and five are all in the same draw. So only two of those five are going to get to the semi-final. So it makes a, doesn't make a mockery of it, but it, it just makes it a little bit unusual that three of the best teams are potentially going to be knocked out before so the semi-final. It's, it's, it's look seems at, unfair. Look at, yeah, yeah, but look at England. England literally haven't played well in this World Cup at all. Yeah. But they've already qualified. Yeah. They're already in the quarterfinals, regardless of what happens this weekend. You know, that's just the craziness that's going on uh, over there. Uh, you'd be aware of this, um, Shane, and Peter, you'd be very well aware of it, that uh, since in the last 10 years, uh, Scotland have only beat Ireland twice out of 14 encounters. The last time they beat us was 2017, which is six years ago. Um, uh, when the Scottish team was announced, did it fill you with hope or what? Uh, I thought beforehand I was, I was quietly optimistic that we, we, we could get a win. 
Uh, then the team came out and uh, that, that just got shot to pieces. I just felt that we've, we've picked the wrong nine. Um, in, in one sense, we've picked the wrong nine because he's not the... Out of the three nines that we've got in the World Cup squad, he's probably got the slowest service. And against Ireland, you want to get that ball away from the breakdown really quickly, try and get Finn Russell and two Pelotu into the game. And then, you know, one of the best defensive players in world rugby is Chris Harris. We mm. only have to win this game by eight points. We don't have to go out and, and get a four-try a four bonus point. Mm. So for me, you play... And, and Chris Harris is a decent attacker. He's maybe not the best attacker, but he's decent. But he's a hundred times better in defence than Hugh Jones. And all I can see Ireland doing an attack is just right down that 13 channel, whether it's Bundyaki, whether it's Ringrose... Uh, whether you bring some of your big forwards down that 13 channel. And the other one they're going to do is going to put the ball behind uh, Van der Merwer. He's, he's great going forward, but he's, he's no brilliant on the ball behind. He's so big truck to turn I think around. we still have a chance. You know, I do think we have a chance, but myself personally, I would have maybe not picked that same team. Okay. Uh, and Shane, from an Irish perspective, who mm. should they be looking out for? Who should people who are watching tomorrow night, maybe who are just casual fans of rugby, who should they be watching out for on the Scottish team? On the Scottish team, yeah, Finn oh. Russell is obviously well. Like Darcy Graham for yes, them has yeah. been superb. Like he's in the back. His strike rate um, on the wing. His strike rate has been fantastic. Is it seven tries I think so far in the World Cup, yeah. and um, he's been absolutely superb. And the one thing about the, the Scotland back three are, are you have to be weary of them. They they have they all have different talents, but um, you know if you give them ball in the loose, they're they're very very effective. So what Ireland need to do in this game is to concentrate on their game. Don't get mixed up in this. The Scottish game is a little more looser, a little more fanatic and see what happens where the Irish is, is very structured. And that's what Ireland need to con continue doing. And that's what I think will happen is that the, Scotland will come out. And look, Scotland are a fantastic side. This scenario shouldn't be as we we're talking about it. But the fact is, is that right now at this time, Ireland are a better side than Scotland. Mm -hmm. And if if... For Scotland to triumph in this game, things have to go wrong for Ireland. And players and need to stop right for playing Scotland. well. Yes. yes yeah. And I don't think that that's going to happen. Yeah. Like we've we've probably six or seven world class players more. Scotland have probably two or three. And a, and a couple of them not selected as yes. well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, what Pete's yeah, saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I see Tyke Byrne been interviewed today at a press conference. He says uh, they've been told there are more, will be more Irish fans at the game. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if you were watching the South African game, uh, Peter, but it seemed like the whole stadium was full of Irish fans. Yeah, Ireland must be empty. Is it not? <laughs> there's so many. I mean, there's the following of, uh, I've got friends, uh, friends from the South Ireland and, they, they've been to every game. They, they go to a game, they go back home, they go to another game. It's it's fantastic, isn't it? It's so close. That, that's the great thing with the World yeah. Cup being in France. Uh, it's so close for the, 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 the Irish and the Scottish fans, obviously English Welsh as well, mm. just to get across the channel and support it. Because there's nothing better than going to the game live and you know mixing with the fans, getting the, getting that bit of banter that's uh, that's really important in rugby. Uh, and you know the best team always wins at the end. Well, usually the best team always wins. And, uh, and it's, it's tough and, and that'll be tough for Scotland because there'll be a, a huge Irish contingent there probably a little bit louder Scottish fans tend to be a little bit more reserved <laughs> the Irish fans they're just, they're just so into the game and they're wild in a really good way really enthusiastic great supporters so it's going to be a brilliant atmosphere in Paris tomorrow in and out the stadium and hopefully the right team wins and, uh, <laughs> and we all have a good Saturday night Well there you go well let's call it then Shane what Ah, look, I, I, I just, I don't see anything 
other than Ireland continuing to to win, I just think they're in a fantastic position, and it's a pity that it's it's Scotland who will be put out because of it, mm. because they shouldn't be in this scenario. No. Okay, Peter, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow night? Yeah. My heart will always go with Scotland, but I think my head says not only will you, I think Ireland win tomorrow, I think they'll win the World Cup. Now you're talking fair play. <laughs> go back, Peter. So, so if we win tomorrow, New Zealand is next for us, isn't it? In all likelihood. Yes, 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 yes. in all likelihood, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, they're, they're not playing at their best, and we've beaten them a good few times in recent yeah, years. Yeah, well, look, yeah, they these games that they're playing where they're beating teams by by huge amount, ironically, helps New Zealand because they remember and they get full of themselves again that they're, listen, we are a fantastic side. So it will be a challenge, there's no doubt about it, but as we've shown over the last... We're up for the challenge. Yeah, the last two years, we're up for that. As as I said to you when you came into studio today, I hope I'll be seeing you again. Yes, but he's got this <laughs> loads of times. <laughs> so I hope to see you for the quarterfinal, the semifinal and the final. Correct. That, that's a date, a date, three three dates ahead. Uh, Peter, unfortunately, I don't think I'll be talking to you again. But thank you so much for talking to us today and, and, and good luck to Scotland tomorrow night. Not too much luck, of course. Th- thanks, Peter. Thank see you. you Cheers, gentlemen. Thank good you. Luck. See you. Bye. Bye. That was former Scotland international Peter Wright and former Irish rugby star Shane Byrne on the Ray Darcy show today and the best of luck to the Irish team later. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. We're going to play you out on a song that's on the RTE Radio 1 recommends list. It's from Serica Richardson and Map of Manhattan. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and have a great weekend.